It is good to be with you today. And it is my turn to get to say to all the ladies in the house, Happy Mother's Day. For many of you, it's not just your own kids, but it really is the case that there are children that you may not have given birth to, but when they see you, they think mom. And we are so blessed as a church to have so many ladies who know how to love like God has called you to love. Ladies, I realize there are some days you get to the end of the day and you feel like you didn't get everything done. You get to the end of the day and you feel like you didn't get everything right. But I just want to assure you that for so many of you, there are people in your life that at the end of the day, they know they are loved. And therefore, you are successful in what God has called you to be. Happy Mother's Day today. It was February 1968. In a public television studio in Pittsburgh that a 40-year-old Presbyterian minister and childhood educator stepped onto a set. He took off his sport coat, and he put on a sweater. You didn't really think I was going to wear that the whole time if I didn't have to, right? (laughs) He sat down, took off his dress shoes, and put on some tennis shoes. By the way, Mr. Rogers weighed 143 pounds. No lie. His entire adult life, he weighed 143 pounds, which means it was a lot easier for Mr. Rogers to get to his feet. But you get the point. On that day, a nation was introduced to what I would consider to be a genius of a man. His name was Fred Rogers. And for the next 33 years, 33 years, he would step onto that set every day. He would take off that sport coat. He would put on that sweater. He would take off those dress shoes. He would put on those tennis shoes. And he would ask one question. He would ask it over and over and over and over again for 33 years, one question. Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please, right? Won't you please, please, won't you be my neighbor? Well, that's the question that we are choosing to ask around here for a month or so right now. It's what we've zeroed in on. And the reason we want to ask this question is because we believe that Mr. Rogers didn't start the question. We believe this reaches much further back than than Mr. Rogers when Jesus called us to consider, are you loving your neighbor as yourself? That's where it all started. Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? It is one of the foundational truths that Jesus calls his followers to live. And what we know 
is that to love means ultimately that ends up at a place where we, above all else, want to share the good news of how Jesus has loved us and how he can love our neighbor too. And so what we're dealing with is just the reality that if we're going to actually be a part of fulfilling Jesus' commission to take the good news to the ends of the earth, it is required that we are willing to start at the ends of our driveways. It means we got to start with people who are closest to us. And so in this series, for a few weeks, we want to ask the questions, how can we do this better? Which means we want to ask questions like, what is keeping us from doing that better? If I took a survey today, asking the question, what is it that you wish you had more of? What is it that you wish you had more of? Now, I get it, sizable crowd, and so I have no doubt in my mind that there would be some responses that come back that would be quite interesting. However, the two most common, that which I think we could summarize in most cases, what do you wish you had more of, would come down to two things, time and money, right? Most of the time, we we wish we had more time, and we wish we had more money. I have no doubt that right now, some of you across this room, what's going through your brain is what you didn't get done yet, what needs to still get done, and how in the world are you gonna get it done? Time. And then there's the money part, right? There's always a growing list of things that we need, and sometimes it's things that we want, and it takes a little bit more, but here's what I'm asking us to consider today. When it comes to money, you realize there is at least the opportunity to get more. There's at least the opportunity to get more. Right? Maybe you're going to climb that career ladder a little higher. Maybe you're going to get an increase in your pay if you do a good job. You either move jobs or you're, you're rewarded for what you do. Maybe it's in addition to your primary work, you decide to get a side job so that you can bring in a little more income. Maybe it's that you make good investments and so your money is multiplied. My point is you can actually grow money. but not time. There's an opportunity to make more money, but not time. When it comes to time, what we have is what we have. And the kicker is, we don't even know how much we have. What we've got is what we've got, and we don't even really know how much we've got. We live in a day where technology is just bizarre. Some of y'all are too young to know how crazy of a, of a technological world that we live in. If we could really describe to you even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, certainly, what life was like, how it was different than now. I mean, something as simple now as a phone, right, and all the apps and all that that does for us to help us stay scheduled, to help us stay organized. But what we're asking today is what happens when we're organized? but we're not organized around the stuff that God says matters most. And so our goal today is to zero in 
to zero in on what it means to create space in our lives to be present with one another. There's only so much time. It's worth asking what God considers to be worth spending that time on. God, how do we create space to be present with one another? Because if we're going to love our neighbors like Jesus called us to, that takes time and it requires intentionality. I'm going to tell you a story here in just a second, but before I tell you a story, I want to tell you about a couple of tools that are available to you when you leave today. There will be a couple of stands that are at the doors, and those, those tools should be on those stands when you leave. One of them is the sheet that we've been passing out for several weeks. It's a, it's a little half sheet that just has nine boxes on it. It represents households. The box in the middle is your household. The eight boxes around represent the eight closest households to where you live. And there's an A, B, and C on each box. The goal is at the top of the A, that's their names. Do you, do you know the names of your neighbors? The B is something you know about them only from talking to them. And then C is something about their heart. And we're just encouraging you to use it. Put it on your fridge. Put it somewhere that you see it on a regular basis where you're praying, God, give me opportunity. Help me to create space that I can begin to know my neighbor even at a heart level, so that they can know the heart of God. There's a second tool that's available for you today, too. It's also going to be a half sheet. Got some info on the front and the back. Because what we've discovered is that one of the ways Jesus did this is he was good at a party. Jesus would show up at weddings, he would show up at dinners, he would show up at celebrations. And he knew how to mingle with people, how to interact with people, how to listen to people. And then it would be out of those settings that he would just say the most remarkable things to teach people about life and love. Well, we can do the same. This doesn't have to be something we dread. What if we take out the barbecue grill and just invite one of our neighbors over? Just a little more intentional about creating space to invite a neighbor over. Hey, we throw a few more burgers on the grill and we just want you to come eat and we just hang out and we visit. Or it might be you're the kind of person that when you hear party, you want a block party, right? You're thinking, how many hundreds of people can we fit? How many hundreds of people can we get on our street? How many streets can we block off? Who can we bring? Well, that's what this sheet is for. It'll be a little tool that's just kind of a checklist that says, hey, if you're thinking about throwing a block party for your street or your neighborhood, here's some things for you to think through just to help you maybe be a little better equipped to connect with some people around you. I've already heard cool stories of people leaving here the last couple of weeks. Some of them have already lined up two or three neighbors. They've got a date on the calendar. They're working at blocking off streets. I mean, it, there, there's going to be some cool stories that happen out of this. My prayer is that God will write some through you, that he'll write some through you. Let me tell you a story that Jesus told a long time ago that perhaps will help us as we want to see his story written in us. It's actually a story about money. But it's a story about money that's going to help us, I believe, with our time. Now last week, I told you about a few of the stories that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. He talked about a lost sheep. He talked about a lost coin. He talked about a lost son. 
The very last story in Luke chapter 15 is about a prodigal son. Now, that's a weird word. We use the word prodigal. You know what prodigal means? Wasteful. Wasteful. That's what it means. And so you got this picture of a son who takes all his inheritance and he wastes that inheritance and he didn't provide for his future. He wastes everything and doesn't provide for his future. I want you to think about that when we turn the page to chapter 16 and Jesus starts a new story. This is how it goes. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. All right, let's talk about what we got going on here. We got two characters so far in the story that Jesus is telling. One is a rich man. He's rich enough that he's got a manager, all right? This man's got enough wealth, he's got enough stuff that he has a manager that oversees that. The word for manager here that we sometimes call steward comes from two words. It's the word law and it's the word house. In other words, this man determines the law of the house. That's what he does. He oversees and manages the land. He manages the crops. He manages the assets. He manages the debts. He acts on behalf of the owner who's all this belongs to, but this manager has great responsibility and he has high social status because he actually interacts with all the other business people. He interacts with the people who have a lot of wealth, with the people who have a lot of power. He's the manager. But in this particular case, he's been accused of something. What was he accused of? Wasting. Where have we heard that word? It's the same exact word that Jesus uses about the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. This guy is wasting the owner's possessions. And so don't see this as, this is not a guy who's embezzling funds. This is a guy who's being irresponsible. He's just not handling them correctly. Now today, if somebody gets fired, how does it work a lot of the time? I mean, it works a lot of the time where they step in and they go, hey, we see what you have done. This is what you've mishandled. This is what you've stolen, whatever it is. You're fired. And the next image is that person with their cardboard box, right, where they've emptied their office and they are escorting you to the exit. That's how it works. Because somebody that's been fired, you don't give them the opportunity to perhaps sabotage the business. You don't give them the opportunity to, to do something harmful. You immediately escort them out of the building. Well, that's not how it worked in that culture in that day. This guy is called on his wastefulness, but now he's being told, now you must give an account for what you have wasted. It would sort of be like you're fired, clean out your office by two weeks. That's not how we do it but it's how they did it. And here is a guy who's losing his job. Here is a guy who's losing his income. This is a guy who's losing his reputation. 
And this is a guy who's losing his home. Because in that day, a steward, a manager, would often live on the property that he oversees. Verse 3. The manager said to himself, little talking to ourself, which sounds familiar because in Luke chapter 15, we've got a son who eventually talks to himself. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. This cracks me up. And I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Well, this guy might be irresponsible, but he apparently is kind of honest because he's like, dude, I don't want to pick up a shovel. I mean, he's a proud white-collar worker, right? I don't want to do anything that requires sweat. I don't want to have to pick up a shovel, and so I need to come up with another plan. And the time for the plan is now. I have got to secure my future. My home is about to be taken away. I need people to give me a place to live. Who could be those people? Verse 5. So, He called in each one of his master's debtors. Hmm. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Anybody see where this is going? Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. All right, let's talk for a minute. 900 gallons of olive oil. That's a lot of olive oil. It's estimated that would take like 150 trees to be able to produce that much olive oil. We're talking about probably as much as three years total wages for someone. This is a sizable debt, and this guy just went, you know what? Just cut it in half. You owe the owner 900? Just cut it in half. And you know what? Sign right here. Did you catch the word? Quickly. Have you ever noticed that anybody that's trying to get you to do something that benefits them, right? Now, in this particular case, it benefits both of you, but the the word is always sign right here. Just go ahead and sign right here. We don't need to ask anybody. We don't need to find out. Let's just sign right here. A thousand bushels of wheat. That's a lot of wheat. Depending on how many acreage would have been in that day. We're we're talking years probably in order to pay such a debt. He cuts it by 20%. Just cuts it right there. Now, in that day, it was common to reduce debts. If it was a circumstance in the culture where maybe it was a famine, something bad happens, it was common in that day for people to be willing to forgive each other's debts in order to help each other stay alive. But that's not what's going on here. The verb back in verse 5, when it says he called in the master's debtors, it is a tense of the verb 
in the Greek that lets us know that this was an ongoing process. In other words, he didn't just do this with two. We're just given two examples. But what the, what the language literally tells us is that this went on and on and on until this man had covered all the people who owed the owner something. Now, do you know how brilliant that is? Do you know how cunning that is? Because by reducing all the debtors, he creates this accounting on their part too. You see, this is a very honorable society in which all of this is happening. And what just got created is now this man, when he asks for somebody to give him a place to live, there's this big community that are all going to look at each other and go, well, he helped you out. Why don't you help him? He didn't just do it with one person so it could kind of be hidden, right? He does it with all of them so that now he doesn't just have one possible place he can live. He's got many possible places he can live because as soon as he asks for a home, everybody else is going to put a little guilt on that person and go, well, he helped you. Aren't you going to help him? Verse 8. You ready for this? The master, that's the owner, commended the dishonest manager. Like what? The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Jesus says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. Okay, that's not where I thought this story was going to go. That's not where I thought Jesus was going to take this. Now, what we need to make sure we understand is that neither the manager of the story that Jesus is telling nor Jesus himself is praising wastefulness. He is not praising deception. He is not praising dishonesty. But what he is commending is he is commending this manager for such shrewd action, for such shrewd thinking. A man who works this well-devised plan, he needed to act and he used the opportunity that was right in front of him in order to secure his future. Now, come on, this isn't hard for us to understand because this is how our culture works. This is what people do around us all the time. Every imaginable clever scheme that can be thought of, people will go after in order to make money, in order to further secure their future. Whether it is honest or dishonest is not the question that most people ask. The question that most people ask is, can I get away with it? And so every kind of ingenuity that can possibly be used to secure future wealth, it's how our society works. People will secure their future any way they can. People will, businesses can, agencies will. Do you know how many agencies exist just to try to find schemes? Because people are trying to secure their future. But if you think that is a surprising statement in this story, then check out what Jesus says next. Verse 9. I tell you. Now I'm going to repeat this. This is Jesus. I tell you. 
Use worldly wealth to gain friends. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Did Jesus just tell us to buy friends? Mm Mm-hmm. Did he really just say, use your money to make friendships? Yes, he did. It was a very common approach in that day for rabbis, for a teacher to use, to, to use something lesser to teach something greater. Only a few times in Jesus' stories does he use a bad example to make a good point. And that's why so many people struggle with this story, is because Jesus uses a bad example to make a good point, but it is one of the most fascinating stories that he tells. Jeff, what does he mean? Well, I'm going to try to put it into words in terms of what I think Jesus is saying here. You ready? Here's what he's saying. If people... If people will use every imaginable approach in using worldly resources to secure a temporary future, then how much more shrewd should the people of God be in using those resources for an eternal future? That's what he's saying. If people will go as far as they will go using something like worldly wealth, then why would the people of God not use everything that they can imagine for eternal wealth? And so he says, use your money. Now, it's going to fail you because eventually it's going to be gone. When you're gone, it's gone. But he says, use it to make friends who will one day welcome you into your heavenly home. That is so cool. He's using the story of this guy who needs a home. He uses his money to have a home. He's saying, why not use your wealth in order to build relationships that you can share the good news of God's kingdom, the good news of who Jesus is, that people will put their trust in him. And one day when you leave this life and you step into the next, there will be people who welcome you into your eternal home. That is brilliant. That's the argument that Jesus is making here. Take the wealth that is not going with you and use it to make friends who can go with you. You can't send your house up because no matter how good your house is here, you would be embarrassed if you took your house up for what the house is going to be when we get there. You can't take your car up You're not going to want to because I'm convinced, and this is a whole other sermon, there's going to be some flying involved. I'm not kidding. You can't take your house up and you can't take your car up, but you can send your wealth up. How do you do that? It's when you invest your wealth, being intentional about wanting to see the good news of Jesus spread. That means when you invest in people who who teach and preach, when you invest in missionaries who take the good news, but it's also about when you take your resources and you pour them into your own neighborhood, into your own effort for an opportunity to connect with people. 
for the greatest purpose of sharing who Jesus is with them, that one day together, you're not just living in the same neighborhood here, but you're going to live in the same neighborhood there because you have put your faith in him. Now, I know this is a money deal, and sometimes people kind of get to that point. It's like, well, Jeff, I would do that if I could. I would do that if I could. I, I, I would give if I, if I could, but the reason that I don't is because I don't, I don't have much of anything to give. If I had more, I'd give more. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. And you say, well, who do you think you are? I'm nobody. And I'm not saying that because I came up with that. I'm saying that because Jesus came up with that. Because the story's not over. Pick it up in verse 10. Here's what Jesus says. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? There are multiple times in the scripture where Jesus teaches us when you are faithful with the small, you will be faithful with the big. But if you are not faithful with the small, you will not be faithful with the big. And we argue that. We do. We argue that. It's like, oh, no, no. If, if there was more where there was more margin and there was more that I had that I would. And Jesus goes, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. And you, you, I know you say to me right now, Jeff, you don't know me. I don't. But Jesus knows you and he knows me. And he knows our hearts. And he knows that when our hearts are not generous with a little bit, our hearts will not be generous with a big bit. It will not. That will own us. It will own us. It's what's called an axiom. It's what's called a truism. It's so self-evident that it doesn't even have a defense. That's what this is. It's just evident. Faithful people are faithful people regardless of how much they have. You think it's about the amount. Jesus said, nope. It's always been about the heart. And he's not done. Verse 12. Verse 12. And if you have not been trustworthy with somebody else's property, who will give you property of your own? You know what that means? You and I, in the story, we are the manager. We're not the owner. In this story that, we're, that he's writing in us, we don't own it. It's somebody else's. You say, well, I worked for this. Well, you might have worked for it, but it ain't yours. And you will either recognize that in this life, or I promise you, you will recognize it in the next. It's, it's not ours. He goes on, verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, you can have multiple bosses, you can, but only one person can own. And what God is calling for here is this single-minded focus, loyalty, and faithfulness to him. He says, nobody else can own you. Nothing else. Verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. That word sneer is the word nose. It, it, it means they got their nose in the air while Jesus is saying what he's saying, which, by the way, is the same thing they did at the cross. 
Same description of what they did at the cross. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. He knows what people value highly. I have not been able to get away from this, this, this line. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. All right, now here's what I want us to see. All that we just talked about, all that we just learned for Jesus, from Jesus, is true about our money. We don't own it. He manages. And if we're smart with what the owner wants to see happen with what he owns, but he calls us to manage, then we will use those resources in order to build relationships, in order to share the gospel, so that together we might one day share heaven. But listen to me. It's true for money. It's also true about your talents and your abilities. There's an owner behind those, and it's not you and me. They are given to us. They are entrusted to us. We are called to manage, to steward those. We are to use them, and if we're smart, we'll use them for the same purpose. But you ready for this? It's also true about our time. Those same principles are true about our time. And maybe it's why I can't get away from that last line in the story where Jesus says, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And the question needs to be, when it comes to my, mind, to my time, whew, is that true? When, when it comes to how I spend my time, Am I spending my time the way Jesus says is, is most valuable in spending my time that I would use it in building the relationships in order to share the gospel that one day we might share heaven? If we really believe that, if we really believe right, that this is God's, he owns it all, if we really believe that there is a hereafter, if we really believe that all this is true, we, the people of God, would become the most shrewd people on the planet in using our time for what God says matters most, like joining him and bringing people into his family and one day into his house. It's not our time. It belongs to him. We just manage it. That is truth that needs to be spoken into the lies that we tell ourselves. Lies like things will settle down someday. Come on, we all know that one. Things will settle down someday. Our life is crazy, our life is hectic, our life is chaotic, but it'll settle down one day. We, we tend to all live with this mentality of, if I can just get through Wednesday, if I can just get through Wednesday, then I'm gonna be okay. If I can just get through Friday, but, but there's always a next deadline. There's always a next day. Lies like more will be enough. More is never enough. More purchases are never enough. More achievements are never enough. We want to buy more, do more, be more, but contentment never comes with more. It doesn't. Lies like everybody lives like this. 
Everybody lives like this. We try to convince ourselves that an overly busy life, right, is just the way it is in our culture. That it's okay. It's almost required. Because just try telling somebody that you weren't real busy today. And they'll look at you like, well, it must be nice. Must be nice to do what you do. Because my day was just chaotic and hectic and over the top and I can't get it all done. It's a badge of honor. We've turned it into a badge of honor. Now listen, being busy is not bad. Actually, there are places in the Bible where it says it's better to be busy than where that, 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 that results, right? Idleness can lead you to some bad places. And so busyness, we're not saying that that's bad or even that that's evil. But what I want us to understand, Jesus, I mean, he was busy in the sense of he got a lot done. But listen to me. Hurry was not his method. Hurry was not his method. Somebody has said, love takes time, and time is the one thing hurried people don't have. We only have a certain amount of time. It might be wise to make sure that how we spend that time is on what Jesus says is important. When it comes, I know, to this this talk this series about relationships and building relationships. There are people that, that kind of want to argue, Jeff, I got relationships. I, I got relationships. It just doesn't happen to be with the people who live closest to me, right? But, but it's other people who are in my life. It might be some people that I work with. It might be some people here or there. And I'm convinced that it's that way for most of us because most of us do what we do out of what is most convenient. We just do. So the deal is, I've got an agenda, I've got work to be done, I've got stuff that needs to be checked off my list, and if along the way I can actually build a few relationships, I know that's good. I know that's what Jesus wants me to do. He w- but the reason we have those relationships is purely out of convenience. We are on our agenda, and there are some people who just happen to get in the way. And what we're talking about in this series is what if that gets turned on its head? And we start asking the question, God, God, how can we make intentional adjustments to get in the path of some people that we are responsible for loving? You say, why am I responsible for loving them? Because you live next to them. Because you live next to them. God, how can I be intentional with some decisions to get in their path instead of them just happening to get in my path? <laughs> now, we're going to talk about this more in the weeks to come, and I have to say this all the time, to say it regularly. We'll say it again. Don't be weird, right? When you're building relationships, don't be weird. The kingdom doesn't need weird people building relationships, right? Be, be shrewd, be smart, right? Be strategic in how you build relationships. Think about what, what you're doing. And we'll learn some of that as we keep going. 
It might mean that sometimes you got to choose to make a conversation longer than it's really convenient for it to be for you right now. I mean, instead of just driving down the street and you give them the wave, right? Out the car window, give them the wave. There's our neighbors. What's their names? Uh, Bill, Fred, yeah. What's her name? There's our neighbors. Instead, it might mean every once in a while you stop the car and you actually speak. Stop the car and speak. Hey, I've come by here every day and just been meaning to just stop and say hi. All right? Stop and say It might mean that every once in a while you got to get off the lawn more instead of just waving and have the conversation. I don't want to get off the lawn more. I've only got this much time to get my lawn mowed because it's going to rain in the next 20 minutes again, right? Every 20 minutes it rains. And so this whole thing is, I, I, I got to mow it and this is all the time I got because I got three more things that I got to get to. But at some point we got to get off the lawn more and actually walk to the fence and have a conversation. At some point, it's got to be bigger than just getting out of our vehicle in the driveway and waving to the next yard. At some point, it's got to be to walk over and to start a conversation. It might be that it's about making a decision to intentionally take a walk in your neighborhood. That's good for multiple reasons. Everybody except Mr. Rogers, we need to take a walk, right? 143 pounds his whole life. I need to walk. So why not walk my neighborhood? And there are people that you tend to see from time to time. Even if I don't happen to see anybody, it's still a good, good process that needs to happen. But lots of times you're going to see people and you can just stop and say hi and you start to get to know names. Now again, don't be weird. Don't be weird. You cannot have an hour conversation with everybody you see or when they start seeing you coming down the street, they will be diving into shrubs. They will be running around the back of the house. They're coming, right? Here they come. You, you can't take all of people's time all the time. You gotta be smart with that. But you can usually tell if they wanna talk. The point is you be available as much as you possibly can. And when they choose to be available, you'll be ready. Maybe you choose to sit at a, a, a neighborhood park. Some of you live in neighborhoods where there's a park or you choose to go there on purpose so that your kids can play so that you can just start to meet people. Maybe you take out that grill and right, you fire up something good and invite somebody over for dinner. Maybe it's as simple as sometimes you hang out in the front yard instead of hiding in the backyard. Isn't it wild? Maybe it's a choice to back away from a hobby that you really, really love, but your hobby takes you away from everybody else. And you're saying, I'm not going to stop my hobby in the sense of, it's okay to enjoy your hobby. But it might be that you want to give some part of that up because you want some time with what Jesus says is so important. Maybe it's the choice to not enroll my kid in every single sports league on the planet so that we don't have to go to every single ball game and every single practice and every single thing because if my time is there, then it literally leaves no time 
to get to know my neighbor. And I know that one's not popular. I get it. I know it's not popular. And it's like, well, but we are called to love our kids. Yes, we are called to love our kids. But I want to declare that you can love your kids and your neighbors. You can love your kids and your neighbors. I'm not saying don't let your kids sign up for ball. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying for a lot of us, there are different scenarios where there are some things that just need to be adjusted, and that may be one of them for some of us because it takes so much time. But if you really love your kids, not only will you be involved in them playing ball, but you will also bring your kids along in teaching them what the most valuable thing that they can possibly do with their time. You're inviting neighbors over, neighbors' kids over. They're playing in the yard so that they see you, dad, mom, Get to the heart of your neighbors for the greatest purpose on the planet. Nothing wrong with learning any sport. But the most valuable, the most valuable is seeing my neighbor come with me to Jesus. You can love your kid. It's why you spend time on them. You realize you love your neighbor. It's going to require time. It's amazing to me how sometimes we can take the things that we recognize to be blessings from God, and then we turn those things into the primary focus of our life placing them even above God. We do. He said you can't have two masters. There can't be two things that rule your life. It's either him or it's something else. And I've done this for a long time. I've prayed with people throughout the years. There have been people who will say, hey, Jeff, I really want to get this job. I really want to see this step in my career. And we go to our knees and we pray that they get that job. And sometimes they get that job. And then what I watch from time to time is that when they get that job and that job consumes their time, their energy, their resources, I watch them slowly step away from the ministry that God has called them to. Hey, Jeff, I really feel like we're called to start a business, start a business. We go to our knees, we pray that businesses will start, and sometimes God lets them start a business. And then the very thing that was the blessing that God gave becomes the overall focus of their life, and I watch them step away from interacting and doing ministry and loving people. Jeff, I want to get married, and so we pray. And sometimes they get married, and then all of a sudden that, that relationship becomes the primary thing in their life to the point that it even makes them step away from loving and serving. Jeff, we want kids, and so we pray. We pray that God would bless them with kids, and then kids come along. And all of a sudden those kids become the primary focus. Don't hear me wrong. Man, I want you to love your kids like crazy. I want you to love your kids better, certainly, than anybody has ever seen people love their kids. I want you to love your spouse better than anybody's ever seen somebody love their spouse. I want you to do your job at a level that is done with excellence, but that it all be in the context of realizing my kids, my marriage, my job, everything I have. It's not mine. but I get to manage. And the greatest way to manage is to love. I'm convinced 
one of the only things that's more touchy with people than money is their time. We live in a day where time is ours. We protect it with everything we've got, so don't tell me what to do with my time. I don't want to. But I'm begging you to let him tell you what to do with your time. Then you will live it to the fullest. God, we need some help. God, there's um, a part of what's happening in our lives is there's just a lot of tired people. For a lot of us, it is a schedule that is just crazy. It is over the top. It is, it is chaotic. It is hurried. And for many of us, we have fallen into this thinking, God, that that's just, that's how it is, and it's almost this badge of honor, but you have declared something different, and that's not what we saw Jesus model for us. So I'm asking you to help us today in an area that we really might tend to hold tighter to than even our money. God, I'm asking you to help us to see it in a right frame. God, we're never going to find fulfillment with all that, with adding one more thing. We're only going to find fulfillment in all that when you are that one thing. And we're listening and following you in terms of how all the rest of it falls into place. God, help us to believe we're never going to love our kids as much as we can love them when you are king when you're calling the shots, when you're directing us, we're never gonna love our spouse as much as we could love them when you are the one in control. We're never gonna do our job as good as we could. Nothing else, God, is ever gonna be to the fullest extent that it can be when you, the owner, the creator, when you are the one who determines what's best. God, today we're asking you to help us to get really practical with this when it comes to our neighbors. God, the people who live nearest to us, you have placed us where you've placed us for purpose. We live where we live for a purpose. And a part of our responsibility, God, it's them. God, will you teach us today? Will you humble us today? Will you encourage us today? And give us boldness to walk this out the right way. It's in the great name of Jesus that we pray it, believing. Amen.